Hello and welcome to the Blockchain and Us, where pioneers and thought leaders talk about their journey in blockchain technology, crypto assets, and the token economy. And I'm your host, Manuel Staggers. This episode has support from no official sponsor, but from my very own The Blockchain and Us newsletter. Get an email from me every two weeks with a very short summary of new podcast episodes so you can immediately pick those interviews you'd like to listen to. To stay up to date, just visit www.theblockchainandus.com and sign up today. My guest today is Alexander Bulkin. Alex is the co-founder and managing director at CoinFund, and he is a multidisciplinary thinker with a special interest in social and technological innovation, bridging technology with social science and psychology. He has 13 years of experience in developing pricing, risk management, and high-frequency trading software at Goldman Sachs, and he is holding a dual degree in mathematics and computer science from New York University and a master's degree in organizational psychology from the Process Work Institute in Portland, Oregon. And now, to the interview. Hi, Alex, and many thanks for making time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Alex, you've been a software developer at Goldman Sachs for more than 10 years. And then in 2016, you switched to CoinFund. Why? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I wanted to do something very different and kind of more oriented into the future of finance rather than um, rather than the same old. Um, I read... Um, my partner at CoinFund is Jake Bruchman, whom I know, whom I've known for a really long time. And, you know, he sent me the Ethereum white paper. Uh, I knew about Bitcoin before that. And having read the Ethereum white paper, it dawned on me that this would be a majorly disruptive innovation in finance. And I became so uh, interested and um, started reading about other projects and then eventually decided to do this full time. Mm -hmm. Did you ever try to do this within Goldman as well? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, the thought, frankly, did not occur to me. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe there also wasn't the platform for it back then. So what is the core business of CoinFund, of your work you're doing there with Jake? Yeah, CoinFund is an investment company. Uh, we started, uh, well, CoinFund started in 2015. And then uh, I came on board in mid-2016 um, and then a couple more people, Alex Felix and Oleg Golubov, the two other partners, have joined in early 2017. And we've always been a, a very broad, um, broadly uh, targeted company in the space. We, we've always been an investment company um, because, uh, you know, in my view, investments is a, is a really great way to understand the space. But we've done other things, too. We've... Um, uh, always been helping projects think about crypto economics, uh, think about their products. Uh, we've, um, you know, we started doing uh, staking and, and network operations services recently, which is something that's um, really coming into the space with all the proof of stake networks. And there is a great opportunity to uh, add efficiency to your uh, crypto asset holdings by staking them and utilizing them effectively within these networks. Um, and I can dive into that topic later if you want. 
so we've we've always been looking very broadly. We've never focused on one specific vertical or uh, one specific activity. We've never really been uh, hands-on technical, but other than that, uh, we really try to understand and and, and do many things. Mm -hmm. Okay. On the website, it also says um, CoinFund is a highly multidisciplinary team bringing together engineering, mathematics, financial analysis, social science, and product expertise in blockchain. So how does social science come in with CoinFund? Oh, oh, my, oh my God, it really does. And that's a great question. I love being asked that uh, because um, that is part of the reason why I joined crypto is because um, these applications and networks and frameworks, they um, ultimately interact with large groups of people. And so it's always a human computer interaction, but, but very large scale and complex. And it becomes um, a social question as much as a technical question about how to make these, um, these algorithms work how to make these applications work, how to make the right product in the decentralized space, how to create the right economics. So you can never consider just technology. You always have to look at it from both the technical and the social side. Mm -hmm. But how do you do it practically, you know, in your work? I mean, how do you bring in that social side? Well, um, it comes when, um, when I think about crypto economics, um, it comes when you have to think about human behavior um, in the way that people will interact with your product and, and in the way that people will play uh, your economic games. For example, uh, when you think about the uh, price behavior of assets in uh, markets that are not fully efficient, um, which crypto market is, it's not an efficient market right now. Um, you, you have to understand, um, you know, behavioral economics and you have to understand individual incentives and, you know, how people um, interact with value and scarcity and, um, you know, and how people try to game the system. So, so there's a lot of social game theory. There's a lot of uh, behavioral economics uh, in, in considering these questions. And, you know, I'm not a behavioral economist and I'm not a social scientist with experience, but I did study some psychology and, and I find it exceedingly valuable because uh, whenever engineers approach these um, products and design these products, they usually make the silliest mistakes. Like, uh, like which mistakes? So, um, well, let me give you a few examples. So, for example, um, if, you, if you remember the DAO uh, in uh, 2016, you know, the DAO was one of the first um, systems that was rolled out to Ethereum that had a governance component. And, and the governance component, it was very basic. It was a vote-oriented governance with um, quorum um, requirements. And um, you saw like we, we saw very quickly that the participation of people in the, in these votes was very low. And that is something that you have to remember that, um, people, you know, you may think that if you give people a voting system that they will vote, but that's not true. And so, so giving another example, um, occasionally a project would, would, would appear on my radar that, it tries to create incentivized, um, economically incentivized Wikipedia or economically incentivized GitHub. 
And I'm generally of the opinion that that can't work. If you read literature and the history of Wikipedia, uh, you'll see that Wikipedia tried to create a, a commercial system early on, and that failed uh, miserably. And there's a reason why it would fail, because uh, because social incentives to contributing, uh, you know, good quality content are not necessarily the same incentives as those that, uh, uh, you know, make people contribute for money. Um, and so introducing economics in uh, large open source systems um, is much more complicated process than a lot of people think. Mm -hmm. So you think there's still much work, much more work to be done and nobody has cracked the right approach to it yet? Yes, I think we will, we will see a lot of um, traditional academic work eventually merging with blockchain design work where um, the thinking in, in, in the theory of social choice will slowly uh, filter into the crypto community and um, kind of root there. Uh, because the, the, the communities currently are quite disconnected. Uh, crypto is still a, a very exotic area for academics, and they haven't yet fully realized that this is where um, their knowledge is, is very apl applicable. And in fact, it's a great platform to test many of these systems that people have been uh, thinking about. Um, so we will see a lot of good thinking come in when, when, the, when the communities interact more. Mm -hmm. Okay. Also, I think at CoinFund, you have this focus on the ecosystem. How do you go about that? I mean, how do you go about connecting these communities, maybe bring in communities that aren't, you know, so haven't warmed up to, to blockchain technology and crypto economics yet? I mean, how do you build these bridges there? Oh, slowly, very slowly. Um, but but I but I have had a few conversations with um, experimental eco economists, uh, behavioral economists. Um, there, there's budding interest there. It's just not uh, fully realized yet. Mm -hmm. It still takes time, I guess. Yeah, I'd like to ask a few more questions about crypto asset management. Maybe specifically, where do you see the differences, the main differences between more traditional fund management, asset management, and crypto asset management? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, the main difference is that crypto assets are rarely passive. Even if you are holding Bitcoin or Ether, which you technically don't have to do anything with, um, it is still the case that um, you have to have a lot more um, um, sort of awareness of technology when you call these assets. Um, you have to have awareness of technology with respect to security, with respect to uh, te technology and systemic risks in the ecosystem. Um, you have to understand uh, the way that technology works to really understand um, how to manage these assets. And then in the recent past, you know, we, we see a much greater um, um, number of crypto assets actually require you to do things because, because unlike, um, for example, traditional equity, crypto asset issuers will want their investors to do things. They will want their investors to stake those assets. They will want their investors to vote and provide governance to the ecosystem. They will want those uh, the, their investors to provide curation services. They will want their investors to um, facilitate uh, the operations of the network. And so um, 
with respect to crypto native assets, you will see a lot more um, assets require investors to understand things and do things. And this is not to say that that's true across the board. So we see a lot of interest in, in security tokens, for example, which are, you know, not a I don't see security tokens as a as a disruptive innovation. Security tokens are more more like a radical innovation um, or an incremental innovation on traditional securities. So in those areas, you will see less of that. But I think ultimately, even though the security token markets are probably going to be pretty big, um, we will still see um, you know the the real the real innovation and the real uh, improvements coming from um, alternatives. Um, you know, I don't like the word utility tokens because it's kind of at this point overloaded and it has been used too much in the wrong place. But let's just call them uh, crypto native assets. So crypto native assets would be platform tokens for uh, crypto networks, um, staking assets, uh, uh, voting and governance assets, um, uh, discount tokens, and so on, where you see real economic innovation, and a lot of that is tied to technology and um, an and understanding of the community and technology and the product. Mm -hmm. so, so you mentioned before, as a crypto asset manager, basically you have to be more savvy maybe in technology. Correct. And the users, of course, the investors themselves also have to understand the assets much better maybe on a technological level. Um, but um, when did you see this this change, you know, from being just an asset manager investing in crypto assets to fund managers becoming more technologists and technology companies? Well, we saw this from the very beginning. Because one of the early projects in the space is Augur, and when I when we when you read the Augur white paper, uh, you know you'll see that Augur Wrap is a is an active token. It gives you uh, it requires that you resolve markets on the Augur prediction market system, right? So so we saw this from very early on, uh, but uh, a lot of um, traders and uh, people just entering the space uh, would always look at crypto assets more like traditional financial assets. And so um, um, and so we always people always come to us and ask these questions and you know and we tell them about you know why it is that assets require understanding of the technology and they always get their mind blown. Mm -hmm. You know, all these traditional hedge fund, you know, management companies that now say, oh, we'll also start a crypto fund and it's a top 10 fund, you know, long only mostly. Do you think that's really totally missing the point of crypto assets? No, I, I don't think so. I think, I think they will just eventually have to um, hire the right team and they'll eventually have to understand um, the systems better. Um, but I think investors um, investors do define the space, but also the space defines the investors. So the ecosystem is both in the innovation that comes with projects and the investor attitude and knowledge that uh, makes decisions on how to deploy um, capital, right? But, but, but the effect is mutual. The new ideas coming from project founders 
will filter into the investment community and, de and define how investors think about all the future projects. And then the investor community will also define what goes and what doesn't um, in the project space. And also, um, you know, there, even now, um, retail investors are a big force in, in the space, but uh, the investment companies really do lead the charge and really create the signals that the retail investors need. So, so it's a well-functioning ecosystem, um, you know, assuming that the knowledge is fluid and, and filters into all the places it needs to go. And so uh, fin large financial companies who, you know, come into the space, they typically look for a custodian. Um, and it's hard right now because custody is a very new, um, is a very new service in this space. Um, but uh, it, we may see a process where custodians are actually also partly managers because then custodians will, um, will take care of staking tokens and, and uh, utilizing them, not just holding them. I think anybody who is uh, going into crypto and uh, is looking at long-only passive holding, I think it's doing it wrong. But, but they won't be doing it wrong for too long. <laughs> Because they'll just get disrupted away, you mean? Well, because they will eventually understand that that's not mm -hmm. efficient. Yes. Yeah, but understanding is one thing and being able to do is another thing. You know, the first question I ask you, why why didn't you just implement the Ethereum idea directly at Goldman? That, that you know, that was because you saw maybe other opportunity to do it on your own, do it with a different team. And I just wonder sometimes, you know, how agile will these more... Um, these fund managers with a more traditional background be to to make that switch. I, I think I think agility for this for these companies is never an issue. Um, my thinking there is very much influenced by this great book called The Innovator's Dilemma, which explains that disruption really doesn't um, disruption is not doesn't happen because companies are not agile enough. Disruption happens because companies really don't have a good, um, a good, a good incentive to go into these new markets. So, um, if Goldman's clients, or or for any large institutions, if clients keep calling the company and saying, "When can we, you know, invest into crypto assets through you?" the company will create the right infrastructure and it will create the right. Um, teams and it will, you know, purchase the right hardware and get the right expertise. And, you know, I might get a call, you know, one of these days from Goldman saying, hey, Alex, come back and help us create a crypto desk. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe that will maybe that will happen, maybe not. But the point is the company will be agile if it needs to be. Mm -hmm. But the issue is that it currently doesn't need to be because, uh, you know, crypto assets as much hype as they as they um, uh, gather around themselves, uh, you know, the risk profile of crypto assets um, is still wrong for large investors. Hmm. Uh, and, and it's still, there's still no crypto products that, um, you know, large corporate uh, companies using financial services uh, need. So a CFO of you know, let, let's say Coca-Cola isn't going to call Goldman and say, when can I invest in Bitcoin? Hmm. The CFO of Coca-Cola will only call Goldman 
when there is a financial product that can be useful to Coca-Cola. For example, you know, some projects are bringing out short-term lending systems using blockchain, and those will be incredibly efficient and very cheap. But they're still toys. They're still small. They're still very risky. And so, you know, when they mature, that's when Goldman is going to have to come in. And it will. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Interesting point. Um, you mentioned before, and I want to get back to this point, you mentioned uh, staking. Yeah. So what other services of these, you know, infrastructure services do you think will crypto asset managers provide in the near and, you know, medium term future? Well, um, there's so much, right? Um, for example, take Steam, right? Steam is, a, is, a, is an old, um, is one of the first and most functional crypto networks and crypto products. And holding Steam passively is silly because you, um, you lose it through inflation. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the, a better way to use Steam is by curating content or by delegating Steam to somebody who curates content. And it's the same exact process uh, as staking. It's just, not, uh, it's just not about network services. It's more about content services. But the idea is the same. You get punished if you hold tokens passively, and you get rewarded if you use those tokens to provide services to the network. So in the case of Steam, the service would be curation. In the case of MakerDAO, the service would be repurchasing the CDP uh, that went underwater or market making. In the case of Augur, it's uh, resolving prediction markets. You know, I can go on and on. Now, you said, well, funds surely can provide these services. I actually want to disagree with you there because um, the, ta the tax implications of uh, creating income inside an investment company are actually quite complicated. Hmm. And, so, and so it's not necessarily true that it's easy for funds. Uh, you know, we spend um, maybe a total of 100 hours uh, working through tax issues that, um, that arise from... Um, actively uh, utilizing tokens. So it's not that simple. But I mean, I was just, the reason I asked it was because I was referring to, you know, Jake's tweet where he tweeted, I think it was a few, few um, a month ago, maybe, where he said the line between investor and service provider is blurred. We might become miners, stakers, validators, bonders, curators, dispute resolvers, nodes, hubs, watchers, routers for networks. And, and so... I mean, I think it's a fascinating idea. It's a very, very good observation. And, and so I just wonder, you know, how does that, well, what does that actually mean? Well, I mean, it's, it's a very um, dynamic space. We're figuring it out as we speak. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there's many possibilities. You can, um, you know, you can uh, partner with staking companies. There's a number of them uh, going online right now, doing research with various networks. Um, some specializing in uh, more traditional mining, some specializing in proof-of-stake mining, some specializing in generalized service provision. You know, um, so what to watch out for is a hard question unless you want to, if you, if you have a significant uh, holding of uh, diverse crypto assets, you would, you would have to do a lot of research and, and see or, you know, um, 
companies like us, we, we, we really um, we, we, we provide this type of uh, input to our LPs, you know, people who, um, you know, who, who, who invest uh, in, in coin fund, we share research with them, for example, that that's that's one way. So 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 there's many possibilities. It's it's either you do research yourself or you have somebody you partner with who does this type of research. Uh, the space is very big, so so it's it's a lot of work. With staking, right? I mean, it's a it's a software challenge, it's a timing challenge, an organizational challenge, a legal challenge. Um, sometimes I wonder, you know, is it possible maybe for a crypto fund to create some sort of product or some sort of derivative that would you know reap these benefits that these new network services can provide and somehow pass it on to investors you know in a more scalable fashion i mean um some some of the some of the staking companies actually looking at tokenizing their services mm -hmm. um as a fund i don't think we really want to do that there's a lot of legal complexity that, that we would probably not want to deal with um Uh, but, you know, stay tuned because new ideas come, come to market every day. Mm -hmm. I'd like to speak a little bit more about crypto economic primitives, um, basically reusable building blocks that can be used to describe and incentivize interactions between people. Um, it's, it's an area I've been reading a lot about in the last few months. And I know that you have a company called Adapt mm -hmm. that focuses on this. So why don't you describe what you have in mind with Adapt? Um, yeah. So, um, well, Adapt is, is an interesting project. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that I've been thinking about um, since I joined crypto. Um, and it's... Um, And it's a software system for launching decentralized networks. Um, and, and the question is kind of why, right? Why do I want to do this? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you ask about crypto economic primitives. The, one of the issues in uh, crypto economics is that you can't easily reuse things that other people do. It's open source. You can look at code, but generally the ecosystem is not set up for code reuse and it's not set up for um, um, it's not set up for libraries of components and there is um, there are clear components in crypto economics you know think of uh, token curated registries think of governance primitives voting primitives um, tokens um, you know staking tokens um, Uh, discount tokens, all of these should be developed in software in a way that's reusable, but that is currently not happening. And I am, you know, I have many different areas where I have knowledge, but I have my deepest experience is in engineering of large systems. And you can't really engineer a large system if you can't um, slap together and prototype uh, quickly. And in order to slap things together and prototype quickly and then change them, you really have to have libraries of pre-existing components you can play with. And, and that currently does not exist. In fact, in fact, it currently cannot exist because, because of how smart contract languages interact with their networks. I don't think they can exist at all. But still, they're necessary, right? Um, maybe first, how would you describe what crypto economic primitives are? 
Well, they are components of system behavior, and they're components um, that you put in to create incentives. So let's take uh, just just a simple example. Let's take an auger. Let's take auger prediction market. Okay. So auger prediction market has uh, clear uh, components that could be made into reusable primitives, right? Uh, for example, uh, resolving the market uh, happens through a process you, we call, um, you know, an oracle. An oracle is a way to report information to the blockchain. It's not necessarily cryptoeconomic, but it's definitely a part of a cryptoeconomic system because it's a required component there, right? So, so an oracle is when somebody can report a piece of data to the blockchain. Then there's a dispute period. There's a there's a potential challenger that can come in and say, "No, you just lied," you know, and all to to create a piece of data on the blockchain you can trust. Okay, so so Oracle is one component there. Another component in Oracle that in 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 in, in Augur that can um, that can be uh, you know isolated and made into a reusable component is is the market itself, because uh, you know in Augur you have trading of um, of shares of various prediction markets, um, and uh, the trading part of it is actually a primitive. So when you trade something, it's basically you atomically swap it for something else. And, and that piece of it, buying and selling shares, uh, you know, is a non-trivial amount of code and, and could be also a component that can be reusable in other places. So the problem right now is that everybody who's developing these systems have to do everything from scratch. Mm -hmm. What is maybe an analog, right, in a, in a pre-blockchain world? I mean, because financial primitives have, have been around. I mean, that's not a, a blockchain innovation. But how, how could one say that, uh, you know, a crypto economic primitive is the next evolution that builds on blockchain technology of this one thing that existed before? So what is an example of that? I, I, I don't actually agree with you. I don't think that's something that's existed before. Um, but is it not like an options contract or a futures contract? Yeah, I was just going to say that in legal technology, you had um, um, kind of uh, cookie cutter contracts. Uh, so you think of those as reusable primitives. But blockchain is the first time when that became um, technology enabled. And, and, and that is such a new uh it's so much more powerful that to say that the, that a crypto economic primitive is just the next iteration of a financial contract, I don't think that's correct. It's just too far out. It's, it's just too innovative for that. So it's much more than creating financial contracts with token economics, you're saying? I really do. I really do think, think so, because um, in, um, if you think of Uh, legal technology as a predecessor to blockchain technology, the cost of um, of enforcing um, a contract is really, really high. On blockchain, in some cases, the cost of enforcing a contract is really, really low. And the difference there is two, three, five orders of magnitude, right? So that makes it qualitatively different because you can do so many things. Like, mm, so, so for example, think of a of an expense of um, creating a new uh, tradable uh, financial contract. 
it, it requires millions and millions of dollars. You have to register it. You have to, um, you know, you have to define it. You have to get exchanges to accept it. You have to get exchange regulators to accept it. It's, it's years and years of work. Whereas in some cases, uh, you can create a blockchain-based financial contract in a matter of, you know, days and weeks uh, with, you know, a fraction of the cost. And you can deploy it and people can use it. Exactly. And people, people can use it and then potentially you can trade it, you know, the same day. Uh, because, for example, in Ether Delta, uh, you don't even have to list an asset to trade it. So Ether Delta will, will, will trade any ERC20 token. Mm -hmm. where, where does most of that innovation in, in these crypto economic primitives, where does it come from currently? I mean, is it new startups? Is it existing exchanges maybe, you know, that create new tradable instruments? Or where do you see all that coming from currently? Um, everywhere. Um, Definitely startups, um, exchanges. I don't see enough innovation coming from exchanges. I'm thinking of uh, BitMEX, you know, with the swap and, and all that. Yeah, I don't know much about BitMEX, actually. I haven't done sufficient research there. But yes, BitMEX is certainly very creative. Uh, in some cases, destructively so, but... It's a fine line, as always. It's a, it's a fine line, for sure. You can have, uh, you can put technology to use in various different ways. Um um, but but other than that, uh, you know, I think decentralized exchanges uh, are definitely innovating. Um, but I think we still think of an exchange in in terms of like 1870, right? Hmm. We still think of an exchange as an order book, um, and and that I think is going to change too. There's um, ideas in in exchange technology that can um, that are that are, that far supersede uh, open order books. I mean, can you elaborate on that a bit? Okay, okay. Well, well, well sure. I mean, um, uh, let, let me disclose some of my IP <laughs> publicly. <laughs> so, so think of what an order on an exchange is, right? Mm -hmm. An order is something like, I will buy uh, X shares of Y for, for, for the price Z. So, so what an order is, is it's, a, it's an expression of uh, your of your um uh, uh of your will in some sense you are telling the exchange to do something on your behalf you're telling the exchange to do something according to your specifications um well an order is a very simple way to specify what it is you want to do but if you think of expressing your will to an exchange you can actually do a a whole lot more because blockchain Is, is, a, is a technology that allows you to embed pieces of your desires into technology and, and, and trust the fact that they will be executed according to your specification. So, for example, you can say something like, I want to have X shares of Y if Z has price T, right? Um, you, can, you can say, I want to have X shares of Y At, at the price, uh, at an average price at which, you know, Z shares of Y have been tra traded over the past one hour, mm -hmm. right? People think of those things as properties of a trading, um, of a trading strategy uh, that gets executed on an exchange, but not by the exchange, right? However, you can actually, with, with secure hardware and blockchain, 
you can embed pieces of your trading strategy directly into the exchange if, if the exchange supports it. And so, and so you immediately deviate from this idea of an order as, as just a, a number of, and a price, right? You can go to fairly complex requests that you can shoot into the exchange. And if you think of an exchange as a cloud, and that cloud can, max, uh, can match together all these different wants from different participants, then you get this very interesting picture hmm. where, for example, you know, with the right amount of encryption and information hiding, you completely avoid um, things like front running or things like uh, market manipulation or... Um, you know, things like self-trading, various manipulative practices will go away if you combine cryptographically enabled data hiding with, um, with a sufficiently rich language that would express, uh, you know, people's wants, mm -hmm. right? So, so that's, that, those are the types of innovations I'm talking about. What happens if you speak to somebody coming more from a traditional finance environment when you, when you discuss these ideas? People... Uh, who get it will not, but but they won't um, they won't believe it. They 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 will they will get it intellectually, but they will not uh, usually connect with it. They're like, oh, that sounds good, but it's too far out. Okay, why do you think they feel it's too far out? Um, well, I think blockchain um, actually is um, to some extent kind of has a bad rep to some extent. Um, there's a lot of speculative behavior, you know, a lot of kind of shady practices. Um, and, and, then, and then also um, traditional finance people are looking for signals from traditional finance people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if JP Morgan goes tomorrow all in and starts publishing good blockchain research, uh, all kinds of things will start happening. But they're not going to do that, nor can they at the moment. They can't because they don't have the incentives, you mean? Yeah, and they will publish research on Bitcoin and mining, which to me is a little bit like 2012. Yeah, interesting. How long do you think it's going to take until that gap closes a little bit? You know, maybe closes completely or at least significantly? Um, well, investments will start happening soon. Um, But, but it will take a few years before there's any real understanding, maybe five to ten. From the more traditional financial players, you mean? Yeah, yeah. How do you see other companies in the economy deal with this momentum of innovation that blockchain technology provides? I think everybody right now is in the wait state. They're like, well, we're going to wait to see if anything real comes out of this. So, so even um, we, we know that there's a lot of interest, but we know that this interest is exploratory. Kind of middle stage startups in technology are much quicker to react, but large established companies, they're all in, um, in kind of in, in, in the wait state. Mm -hmm. Is this, in your view, is this a good strategy? Let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. This episode has support from no official sponsor, but from my very own The Blockchain and Us newsletter. Get an email from me every two weeks with a very short summary of new podcast episodes so you can immediately pick those interviews you'd like to listen to. To stay up to date, just visit www.theblockchainandus.com and sign up today. Large established companies 
they're all in, in, in the wait state. In your view, is this a good strategy? Um, I think it is a good strategy. Um, I actually, I actually think that uh, a lot uh, when I when I hear of large um, companies investing in Bitcoin, I actually think that they should wait some more before they understand what they're doing. Um, I think large companies should go to the right players for information. I think there's there's a good number of uh, excellent uh, startups in blockchain that can help with research. Um, and I think that, that uh, you know, the information that's coming to large companies is coming from places like Microsoft, IBM, you know, McKinsey, um, you know, because they, when they ask these questions, they, they ask these questions of people they know. But unfortunately, people they know don't know anything. You know, and, and even uh, as much respect as I have for IBM and Microsoft going into blockchain, they are there to uh, cover a, a consortium private blockchain use case, yeah. which is not very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. They're there to provide uh, kind of a new technology for distributed databases, which again is incremental, not disruptive. And so, and they, those companies are not going to tell you about Ethereum. They're, they're going to basically tell you about, you know, Hyperledger and um, and similar models mm -hmm. um, that are not interesting from the perspective of financial innovation. They're just interesting new ways for large companies to collaborate, but they're not disruptive. Um, and so uh, large companies should have a spectrum of people helping them. Um, you know, people like Vinay Gupta of Materium, Scott Nelson of Sweetbridge, you know, Coin Fund, uh, Placeholder uh, Capital, you know, um, large uh, crypto native companies are the only companies that can um, that can really help understand the disruption behind this technology. Do you think? And, and again, there, right? I mean, before you said it's maybe not a bad idea for some companies to wait, but for these tech giants, you know, like Facebook, Twitter, Google, Apple, do you think um, they're missing the boat on all of this? Um, I think these large companies, I, honestly, I am not, I'm not actually able to speculate there. Um, uh, you know, large technology companies have done many surprising things True. and, and not that familiar with that culture. So it would be speculating for me to guess. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I'm just wondering, I mean, I'm in finance, you know, the writing's on the wall and I hear this all the time that, you know, most of the financial services in the crypto space will perhaps come from newcomers. Um, and so I'm just wondering sometimes, you know, what the other tech companies... Honestly, are. I think that the biggest... Uh, I think investment banking, like, like you know, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, you know, those types of companies are probably quite safe at the moment. Um, but I think the companies that are going to see the most amount of disruption very soon are just traditional banks. Yeah, totally agree. Because, because, uh, because honestly... Um, you know, people uh, who started using iPhone as teenagers are now 25, right? Uh, or, or, or even like 30. And um, what that means is they're going to demand the level of user experience and product exposure that the banks will simply not 
be able to provide or agree on or uh, gain the uh, expertise for. Because think of think of Citibank, for example. I never worked for Citibank, bank, but you know, a friend of mine worked for Citibank for you know several years, and um, y- you know, no serious technology team will ever be one employed by Citibank, and 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 because. And 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 that's uh, and that's a problem for banks because they're so, you know, they're so out of date with their culture and their approach to serving uh, end user needs. They still think that it's okay to make people come to branches. You know, they still think that it's okay to use, uh, you know, photographs of signatures. They still think that it's okay to use, um, you know, your mother's maiden name. I mean, that's going away, man. That's that's just going to go and crash on itself. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to CoinFund a little bit, and then then we can open it up again. In your work at CoinFund, um, what are you learning at the moment? Whoa. Well, um, that's a great question. Um, I mean, is there something that has surprised you, you know, where you thought, I know exactly how to do that, and then... It was totally different. Yeah, constantly. Um, but I think at the moment, um, you know, fundamentally at CoinFund, I think we have to learn agility. In fact, anybody who operates in the space, this is also very philosophical. But anybody who operates in this space has to learn agility and, and as a matter of fact, has to learn anti-fragility. You know, the, I don't know if you've read the, uh, the, the book with that, with that title by, by Nicholas Taleb, right? Anti-fragile. Big favorite. Um, anti-fragile is a, is, a, is a Bible of crypto. Um, and so, and you have to learn it. It's not that easy because it's the easiest thing that, that you can do is oh, you know, Ethereum is going to succeed, let me invest this much money into it. And, and a much more difficult thing to do is how do you um, survive and succeed, whether it's Ethereum or anything else. And it's not about diversification, it's also about how to be an activist investor and how to be, uh, you know, broad and how to be diplomatic and, and how to be... Um, um, you know, positioned correctly and how to have the right operational structure and how to have the right accounting system and how to have the right team. It's across the board, a really, really difficult and fascinating problem. And when it's, uh, when we say it's multidisciplinary, we mean it because it's law, it's technology, it's organizational structuring, it's, it's, uh, psychology, it's how do you, you know, fight with your partner and then and then and then work together in a way that's more um, you know more productive. You know, and we have we have disagreements all the time, and and we're because of how we're able to have disagreements. I think we're like the best team in the space. I honestly am am completely in love with how we work together. Mm-hmm. Cool. Is there? Or the skills, right, that you mentioned before, um, anti-fragility, agility, or just, you know, also more practical skills of running a business, you know, in this always morphing and changing environment. How do you go about acquiring and training 
these skills? Um, you have to stay extremely humble. It's like the moment you think you know something, that's a red flag. And do, do you guys, you know, uh, speak a lot about these things in the team or, you know, do you guys call each other out when you see those things happening or? Yeah, yeah, to totally. I, there was a period of time when Jake came back from East Buenos Aires. I started calling him an Ethereum maximalist. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it was a short period of time, but, but uh, there was the funny uh, interaction between us. Yeah, it's about much more than technology. It's about much more than finance. And that's what makes it fun, I think. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned a few things before that you believe are necessary to succeed in this space. And if you look at the blockchain and crypto ecosystem more generally and more broadly, what do you think this space needs most in the next few years to grow? Well, so that um, I think we're doing a ton of things wrong like fundamentally wrong, like wrong in a major, major, major way. Um, for example, um, the mistake we're making is, look, crypto is a great innovation. It works perfectly. And that's, a, 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 it, that's wrong. That's not the case. Crypto is a great innovation, but it works nowhere near perfectly. And, and in fact, the user experience of using any crypto product or exchange is so bad that only about, you know, 5% of people I know are even able to uh, manage the complexity of it. Um, so, uh, for example, let's take, um, let's take one of the, let, let, let me name uh, one of the major assumptions under which crypto is being developed. The major assumption that I want to name is uh, we need Uh, that there is a uh, one network captures all the value premise and we need a network to get as large as possible. Okay, so that's the premise of Ethereum, that's the premise of EOS, that's the premise of Cosmos, Definity, you know, Decred, uh, Stellar. It's basically the idea of large network uh, wins all scenario. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a, an associated set of derivative assumptions, which is uh, if you issue a token for a network, that token is going to be a major value capture mechanism. The, um, you know, the, the market cap of these networks is supposed to be in the billions of dollars. You know, the development team uh, is supposed to think of this network as a universal network because it, it wants to attract as much as possible you know, uh, as, as many decentralized applications as possible. Mm -hmm. And, and this is completely wrong, completely wrong because, because, uh, the large network thesis that we, uh, tacitly operate on is not correct. It creates a huge amount of problems. It creates, for example, um, the, the surface of attack problem where, Because Ethereum can run any smart contracts, it increases the surface of attack of any smart contract. Hmm. Um, it has a user experience problem because to, 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 to interact with a specific network, you have to hold the currency of that network. You have to pay for transactions. You have to think of how many transactions you can pay for or have or, or you know, if you're building a decentralized application, you have to somehow 
not clear how you have to do it on behalf of your users because you have to you you want your users to have a good user experience but but the network becomes a major player mm-hmm. in 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 these applications right uh, there's incentive problems where uh, the one network wins all thesis makes networks very um, hostile to each other hmm. and and it and it creates a situation where oh this network is going to will win it all so i'm going to put five billions of dollars into it and there's going to be a four billion dollar ico uh you know for this network and and that's just you know if you if you have any experience in venture capital you'll know that overfunding a project is just as bad as underfunding it or worse mm-hmm. Um, it creates um, really bad social dynamics. So across the board, these are uh, these dynamics are um, kind of you know incessant and 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 intrusive. And but at uh, the core of what you're just describing is basically the idea of network effects as the most valuable thing, right, in a network. And you think that's wrong in in blockchain um, technology? I I don't think the idea of network effects is wrong, but you don't need one network to have network effects. Because crypto is is very interesting. Crypto has a different kind of network effect. The network effect in crypto is related to exchanging currencies Mm -hmm. and interoperating between applications. But uh, you can interoperate between different networks and you can exchange currencies between different networks. And that's... um, and, and we are developing this technology right now, but it's going to come. And in that case, you don't need one network to have a network effect. You can have an ecosystem of many different small networks. And from the agility and, and uh, user experience perspective, a large number of small networks is a better model than, a, than one big network. And, and that hasn't sunk in yet. Oh, that's not, we're not even doing this, but, but, but ADAPT is a, is a project I'm working on to enable people to build small customized networks quickly and easily and create reuse for decentralized code. You know, and, um, you know, let, let me, rather than explaining the vision, uh, let, me, let me paint a picture for you. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay, uh, I'm gonna take a specific example. I'm, take, um, I'm going to take an example uh, of a decentralized marketplace, and I am going to paint a picture for you of how uh, a, a network dedicated to a decentralized marketplace can work. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. So, so a decentralized marketplace. Think, um, you know, think Amazon, right? Um, can it needs needs its own uh, needs its own economic network, and that network has to operate under consensus. But orders uh, and, and, and stores um, of individual sellers don't have to be on blockchain. They can operate as uh, privately uh, hosted databases where the seller can choose what it advertises and it can have a reference implementation, but they can change it and add new features to it. And so you have a network where there's an economic backbone dedicated to this market it's not a it's not ethereum it's the you know decentralized amazon economic back, backbone network that has you know a payment asset uh you know and it has a um you know a reputation system and it has a 
uh, seller directory with reputation. And then sellers, um, you know, shops are hosted in sellers networks. Now, how does this network get launched? Well, here's one scenario. Um, you first crowdfund the development of this network by selling staking licenses. And the staking licenses require you to run uh, nodes to provide consensus services to the Amazon's backbone network. I'm describing a staking licenses, which is not sellable as its own asset. It is just your license to create a node on this network. And early investors in your network are the best people. And, and you know, think back to our conversation about staking, how investors will also be stakers and network service providers. Well, your early investors are your best people to do this because they're interested in your success. So, so the network service, so, so the, the mining license will let you run a node and the node will mine the currency of the network. But the currency of the network is different from the mining license. So, so if I were to develop this network, I would create, you know, a hundred mining licenses mm -hmm. and I would sell, you know, 90 of them to the initial service providers, uh, to the future initial uh, stakers on this network. And then when the, when the network is done, then I would take the money, I would develop the network the network would be launched, then the initial stakers would come in and run nodes. And if they don't run nodes, they will basically lose their asset. Right. It's a requirement for them to run this, this node, right? But then the currency of the network will be mined, will be mined by the stakers. Hmm. Um, and so the stakers will create the initial supply of the currency. Uh, there will be a share drop that will probably happen to distribute this currency to some extent. And then the stakers will provide additional services, like, for example, you know, ensure that the reputation disputes are, uh, are um, resolved, right? Make sure that disputes are resolved, that some governance services um, to, to tweak the parameters of this network and so on and so forth, right? So, so you can see that if when I describe this to you, you can immediately get the picture that there's absolutely no way that it can be done on Ethereum. Hmm. It can probably be done on Ethereum to some limited extent, mm -hmm. but it's complicated and it's a huge development effort. And in the end, what you get is you get uh, all the risks of Ethereum also inherited by this network. And Ethereum miners or stakers are not aligned with your network. So you want your stakers to be fully aligned with, your, with, with the functioning of your network. So in order to build such a network, you have to start from scratch. Or you can use a product like Adapt. And Adapt comes in because Adapt is a way to program this network top, from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and with Adapt, you can program the, the consensus network of the market. You can program the state channels that will be used for fast payments. You can program the private uh, databases that are uh, run by the, by the people who own shops uh, hosted by this network, right? It's a unified programming model for databases that specifically accounts for the blockchain use cases and allows you to develop, uh, you know, staker incentives to uh, develop the requirements on your stakers, to develop the requirements on your participants, to narrow the 
um, scope of attack of your network because now this is a specialized network. It doesn't have to have a smart contract being launched by people you don't know. It can. It should only have code run on it that uh, fix or contribute to the functionality of the market. Mm -hmm. So stakers then become people who accept or reject code improvements and, or changes on the network. This makes the network more agile, right? This makes the incentives kind of fully aligned between the initial group of people who run the network and all the users of the network and all the sellers on, on the network. Uh, you know, it allows you to develop the network quickly because the network is based on potentially some reusable financial primitives like mining licenses or uh, uh, reputation systems or dispute resolution code or the code that governs uh, changes to other code, right? Mm -hmm. And so the process itself becomes quicker. Oh, and, and, and get this, the, the, the last piece of the puzzle is that you decentralize that network slowly. Interesting. So, so in, the early, in the early stages of when the network uh, is run, it's small and it doesn't need to be fully decentralized. So at that stage, you uh, run with your uh, mining licenses and, and you only, and there's only, you know, 20, 50 or 100 people that run your network, but there comes a time uh, that you code into the network where the mining license will become obsolete and then anybody who holds the currency of this network will become, uh, you know, a staker. Yeah, interesting. And what amount of money do you think is necessary to build this? The, the, this market? Yes, because before we talked about, you know, hugely overfunded ICOs. Well, well so, so assuming, assuming ADAPT is fully built, uh, I think you can build a prototype in a couple of months with mm -hmm. like half a million dollars. And, and sort of my goal is that, that ADAPT is being built so that you can have hundreds and thousands of these experiments. How long do you think it, it will be until we see all these smaller markets pop up, like you just described? Well, so, so I think if ADAPT gets developed, I think everybody is going to start doing it. I keep, I keep hearing, we're going to fork Ethereum, we're going to fork Decred, we're going to fork Bitcoin. And that's because the need is there. You know, the need for custom networks is there. There's just no good, good software to build it yet. Mm -hmm. so, so unfortunately, the problem is that ADAPT itself doesn't have a good funding model. And, and unfortunately, it can't. Because, because the moment you issue a token for ADAPT, you know, you then limit the token to the network. Uh, you know, you, 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 you create the wrong incentives in the ecosystem. Is this an issue currently, you think, for these more forward-looking, you know, more truly democratizing projects that they just cannot attract, you know, quick and plentiful funding? Um, yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, if you want to really do the right thing and you don't want to create crypto economics just because, uh, just because you need one to create a funding model, then then you have a problem and hopefully we'll see innovation in that regard um and and we'll see the community becoming more active in terms of supporting projects uh for what they're building not for what they can pay you mm -hmm. right but that's happening already to an extent no i mean there's a lot of early investors in ethereum bitcoin who want to see these kind of innovations happen um 
I don't know if that's true. I think, um, you know, Ethereum investors want Ethereum to go up. So they've already already become the establishment. Oh, yeah. Ethereum, Bitcoin, uh, EOS, they're all establishments, uh, unfortunately. Yes. Interesting. Um, where do you think we'll be in, you know, maybe five years with crypto asset management? Oh, boy. Um I think I think we'll see um, a good amount of innovation that will reach uh, larger and larger user communities. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I hope that we'll be somewhere in um, in the middle of finance 3.0, you know, um, innovative banking products, innovative finance, um, you know, clear regulation, um, you know, um, tax regulation that makes companies like ours easier to operate. Mm -hmm. And honestly, just to mention it, you know, some people are thinking that uh, securities uh, regulators will, will kill uh, crypto, but actually it's probably tax regulators mm -hmm. because tax regulation is so complex and so hard to, um, and so hard to work with uh, when you're dealing with crypto. You know, we do a ton of work to ensure that we're doing it correctly and compliantly, but we can do so much more if only the tax code were to be simplified uh, for crypto. That, and, and if that happens, then, then the tax authorities would be getting more money. Hmm. There's no question about it. Right. And you're mainly referring to the U.S. tax authorities here. Correct. Um, yes, and 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 the reason why they would be getting more money is because they would the people companies will be doing more business because a lot of business we are not doing we're just simply not doing because of tax regulation. Hmm. Right. We understand that that we understand that uh, you know for example you know we have foreign LPs and uh, you know in the tax regulation with respect to international business is very complicated. And, and to to um, have foreign stakeholders is very complicated. And so there's some things you simply cannot do because that puts that puts a very onerous burden on foreign regulate on foreign stakeholders. Um, we, we will simply not do them. Um, and, and so that's why, uh, you know, tax regulators should think about simplifying this because people will be doing more business in the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about these other jurisdictions that are more open? I mean, Malta, Gibraltar, are you looking at those as well? Yeah, but there's only so much you can do as a U.S. company, um, you know. I mean, do you think it's um, somewhat of a, of a drawback for a company that truly wants to innovate to be in the U.S.? Um, yes, I think regulation is right now the biggest obstacle to broad U.S.-based innovation. I think I, I'm going to estimate that U.S. is probably losing huge amounts of money to foreign jurisdictions right now. And while while this is a early stage space, it doesn't seem so bad. But honestly, in in five to ten years, this is going to be translating into trillions and trillions of dollars. Uh, going to uh, leapfrogging jurisdictions, you know, Africa and, and Middle East and and uh, Gibraltar and you know Netherlands and all the all the countries that are friendly to crypto um, will see uh, extreme amount of um, 
of uh, wealth coming to them, and U.S. will not, and and U.S. will will lose the torch for innovation out of Silicon Valley. Unless they innovate, which they still can do. Yes, for sure. How do you collaborate with other crypto asset managers, you know, maybe in the U.S., but also abroad? We, um, there's nothing formal, but we talk a lot. And, and, and we exchange uh, information and research and deal flow and brainstorm together. Um, there's a fairly tight community of crypto native asset managers, um, and, and we love doing it. We don't feel that, that the asset manager space is competitive. It's a very cooperative space right now. Mm-hmm. Cool. If, if someone wanted to start an asset management business, you know, maybe coming from a more traditional finance background or a tech background, what do you think should they do first? I think, honestly, if you wanted to do this, you would want to partner with an existing company. And, and you, if you, for example, feel that you can contribute, um, um, you know, good fundraising to a company, you know, come talk to, you know, to an existing crypto native crypto fund um, and, and partner rather than starting your own. Because starting your own in this space, um, it's, it's freaking difficult. Um, and you, you would think that, oh, you just start a fund and you start investing, but um, you're going to make so many mistakes that, 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 that are not in any way avoidable uh, unless you know crypto really, really well. Hmm. Do you think it's already too late, maybe, for new entrants in this space? Because the ones that entered early, you know, have such a huge amount of an advantage, right? Also in mind share and also obviously in assets under management. But but do you think that, you know, that uh, window has already closed for new entrants here to make a dent? No, I mean, there's many different things you can do. Um, you know, I shouldn't say it's closed, but but definitely make sure you, you get, um, you know, you get good experience. You know, window closed or not? Good question. I don't. I don't really know. I just know that there's like hundreds of funds that came came up in 2018, and and um, hundreds too many, probably too. It's it's a little bit too many, and and it's a difficult landscape. And um, you know, if you have money to invest, then you can do better things than than starting a fund. Mm-hmm. Great, Alex. This was this was really interesting, and I really appreciate your insights and your examples that you gave and your experiences. And I thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. It was really fun to talk about this. I really love talking about it. And and so, so thank you for letting me uh, talk to your community. Thanks so much for joining us today. More info on our guests and our sponsors is in the show notes of this episode and on the podcast website, theblockchainandus.com. To help people find this podcast, it's important that you download, subscribe, and give it a top rating and review on iTunes or on the podcast platform of your choice. I'm Manuel Staggers, and I thank you very much for listening.